You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, not for our sake, we are unworthy sinners. That you graciously gave to your son. And so for the glory of your name. For the glory of your son. Send your spirit now to bless the preaching of your word. And lift up our hearts to you. In Christ's name. Amen. Robert Murray McShane said. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I think McShane's words tell us something of why the saints have so treasured John chapter 17. Here, our Lord prays for us. It's one thing to hear our Lord preach comfort, as we have heard Him in chapters 13 through 16, but here He prays comfort for us. The Westminster Divine, when you hear that phrase, Westminster Divine, that's simply one of those theologians who was part of developing what are called the Westminster Standards, Westminster Confession of Faith, Longer Catechism, Shorter Catechism, Directory of Worship. The Westminster Divine Anthony Burgess preached 145 sermons on John chapter 17. And he wrote, If it be lawful to prefer Scripture before Scripture, we may say, though all be gold, yet this is a pearl in the gold. Though all be like the heavens, Yet this is like the sun and the stars. John Piper titled his series through Romans, the greatest letter ever written. And when he came to uh, Romans 8, he was so bold as to say that it is the greatest, not simply the greatest chapter in the greatest letter ever written, but the greatest chapter in the Bible. If he had simply said that it was the greatest chapter in the greatest letter, 
I would make no contention or fuss. But just because you find the greatest chapter in the greatest letter doesn't mean you found the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I am certain that this is not an argument that can be objectively determined and settled. But I'm also certain that John 17 should give one great pause in asserting definitively that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. William Temple said this is perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels. J.C. Ryle wrote, these verses begin one of the most wonderful chapters in the Bible. It has been well and truly said by an old divine that the best and fullest sermon ever preached was followed by the best of prayers. Here, the communion that we've enjoyed in the upper room that's been so intimate and rich is carried up higher still. Here we are carried up into the heavenlies. Sinclair Ferguson asked, how do you get to know someone well? You talk with them face to face. But sometimes we get to know them even better if we overhear them talking face to face with the person they love most. It's been sublime to listen in to Jesus' conversation with His friends. But now we listen in to this conversation with His Father. We've listened into this conversation with His friends knowing that those same truths that He's comforting His friends with are ours. And the same thing happens. Now we listen in though to Him praying to the Father these very same truths for our comfort. Going back to at least the 16th century Lutheran theologian David Cretreus, this has been known, and, and perhaps even earlier, back to the 4th century with Cyril of Alexandria, this prayer has been known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Some have argued against that. They like to call it the, His prayer of consecration. This is an earthly prayer, they'll say, of consecration, not a heavenly prayer of intercession. I think it's silly to limit the priesthood of Jesus in operation to His heavenly intercession for one, but I also think it a flop not to see this earthly prayer as an anticipation of Jesus' heavenly intercession. F.F. Bruce writes, this prayer becomes the prototype for the perpetual intercession of the people's high priest. Here, we'll see, Jesus doesn't simply come before the throne. He carries us with Him. Not only does this prayer lift up, it expands out. Generally, this prayer is divided into three sections. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus' focus concerns Himself. In verses 6 through 19, 
it turns to the disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, it closes out expanding to the church Catholic, the universal church, all those who are children of God. So be astounded because here you are privy to exactly what McShane esteemed so highly. Here, you do not have a model prayer, as you see in Matthew 6, Luke 11. Here, you have indeed the Lord's Prayer. Longest recorded prayer in the New Testament, longest recorded prayer of our Lord, the Lord's Prayer. And, as you see as it expands out to include you, it's a prayer for you. And it's a prayer that lifts you up into the heavenlies. Doubt your own prayers, if you will. But do not doubt this prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, this prayer is not detached, it doesn't float, it's not isolated and independent, it's anchored in what Jesus had said. When Jesus had spoken these words, this prayer, it's clear, is a lifting up of the same truths to the Father that He has been preaching to His disciples. Anthony Burgess again writes, Christ Himself does not think it enough to plant but he prays that there may be a watering from above. The promises Christ has planted in the hearts of, his, of the disciples, he now asks the Father, asks that the Father waters. What Jesus preaches, he prays. Though this is pure prayer, it's a prayer that he intends to be overheard and overheard, overheard still. Jesus not only prays what he preached, his prayer preaches. You're meant to overhear this prayer for the same reason you were meant to overhear that earlier sermon. You're meant to overhear it because these truths that he speaks to the disciples are not just for their comfort, they're for our comfort. And this prayer was not only for their comfort, it's for our comfort. Here the longing of McShane is nearly met. Though we do not hear our Lord praying, we can hear what our Lord prayed, and we know our Lord changes not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thus He lifts us up still. He carries us up still. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prays, the hour has come. In chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. Earlier attempts to arrest Jesus failed, we were told, John 7.30 and 8.20, because His hour had not yet come. But as we come into this upper room, the hour has come. And Jesus is soon to step out into the full darkness of that hour. John 13, 1. 
Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Those words set the stage for the upper room discourse. They set the stage for this prayer still. His hour has come. It is the hour of Jesus' passion, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his wrath bearing, his, the hour of his curse becoming, the hour of his trouble, of his woe, of his trouble, the hour in which he becomes a curse, the hour of his death. But just as with the preceding discourse, that doesn't cause overcast gloomy skies for this heavenly prayer. It's filled with joy and comfort. Again, what troubles Jesus is their comfort. And as Jesus preached, he now prays Centering not on his trouble, but on their comfort thereby. You need to hear this prayer prayed on the eve of the crucifixion. But you need to hear it prayed on the eve of the crucifixion with a resurrection mourn expected to follow. This is not Gethsemane's prayer. Both are glorious and awesome and holy. But this prayer is full of notes of victory and glory and comfort and joy. Here in this prayer, you catch something of what was that joy that was set before him for which he endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews 12.2. Bruce Milne comments on the first petition The first petition gathers up the whole prayer. The rest is commentary. You can see in this first petition something of that glory, that joy that's in front of Jesus for which He endures the cross despising the shame. Everything else stems from this central petition. Everything follows. This is is the one that is the heading over everything else Jesus asks in this prayer. Father, The hour has come, glorify your Son. This is the way the prayer opens, glorify your Son. This is the way the prologue for the upper room discourse opened. 1331 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. The hour has come, and Jesus is praying to be glorified. And it'll be clear as we go along, this is a reference to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But it has reference to the cross as the means of coming into that resurrection and ascended glory. In John 12, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The Son of Man is coming into the hour of His glorification, and He comes into that glorification through death. Following this, we read, Jesus saying, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And after this, Jesus addresses the crowd saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. That's Jesus' entering into glory. And John makes this comment thereafter. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Through the shame of the cross... Jesus comes into the glory of His resurrection, ascension, and session. Because of the cross, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule as our King on David's throne. To forever sit as our High Priest after the order of Melchizedek. And to, like the prof- to be like the prophet To, as the prophet, like Moses, send the Spirit to inspire and illuminate the Word of God. Listen to the harmonious logic of Philippians 2, 7-11. Christ emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Why does Jesus ask that the Father glorify the Son? so that the Son might glorify the Father. It's the Father's glory that is utmost in Jesus' concern in this petition, glorify your Son. Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Here you see the Son praying that in a unique way as only He can. Glorify the Son so that your name is hallowed. The incarnate Son's glory and the Heavenly Father's glory are wed together inseparably. Why? What's the grounds upon which Jesus makes this central petition? The sense of verse 2, S-I-N-C-E, The sense of verse 2 tells you that what follows there is the grounds upon which Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since because you've given Him authority over all flesh. Before we dive into that, saints, learn to argue In your prayers. Learn to give reasons. Grounds. For your petitions. Anthony Burgess wrote. That is the best prayer. Which is most argumentative. Learn not to argue against heaven. But learn to argue 
heaven for heaven. One Puritan put it this way, God is fond of His own handwriting. Bring His Word to Him. Bring His promises to Him. Bring His character to Him. Argue reason in your prayers. Or else, if you don't have any reason for your petitions, why? Why pray? Why should He listen? Pray in Jesus' name. Pray bringing that argument supremely to the Father, Jesus, again and again. The reason the Son asked the Father to glorify Him so that He might glorify the Father is because the grounds are that the Father has given Him authority over all flesh. As God, Jesus eternally had and retains all authority. Here He's given authority. As dangerous as it seems to say, it is true. This is an authority that Jesus did not have and could not justly exercise by divine right alone. It's an authority He must be given. This is, an, this is a redemptive authority to give life. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and session are necessary for Jesus to exercise this authority. He's given this authority on the basis of who He is and what He does. It's the incarnate Christ after His resurrection that says to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If there was no incarnation, there could be no crucifixion. If there's no crucifixion, there could be no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no glorification. And if there's no glorification, there's no authority. And if there's no authority, we're not sent. And even if we were sent, there would be no gospel for us to tell. But Christ has been crucified. And Christ has risen. And in that capacity, as the Christ, He has been given all authority to give life. And He gives that life to those who were given to Him. A people are given to the Son by the Father to redeem. This is the doctrine of definite atonement. Jesus didn't make redemption possible. He paid the ransom. And He bought a people for God. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.39 This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing 
of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 27 through 31. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. For you to really grasp the comfort that this prayer gives. You need to see that Jesus saved His own. All those given to Him. These people were chosen by the Father in the Son before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. And they were chosen according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. If Jesus is not glorified, this glory is not seen the glory of His grace. And it's not praised. Father, glorify Your Son, that the Son might glorify You, so that all those You've given Him would have eternal life. Because if that doesn't happen, there is no praise of Your glorious grace. That's the grounds upon which Jesus prays. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now what is this eternal life that the Son gives to those who have been given to Him by the Father? Verse 3. This is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How sad that there are many, not simply outside the church, but inside the church, that they think the good news of the gospel is simply eternal life, living forever, no suffering, no pain, bliss, ease, joy, comfort. That's it. Period. That's not eternal life. The eternal life that Jesus has been unpacking throughout the upper room is that by the cross, He's leaving them. It's good news because He'll go to the Father and He will send the Spirit such that having the Spirit, the Father and Son make their home with them. Eternal life is knowing God. Knowing the Son. Eternal life Is knowing the Father in and through the Son by the Spirit. The deathness of death does not consist in non-existence. But estrangement from He who is life. The cursedness of death means knowing only the wrath of He who is altogether lovely. The lifeness of life does not consist in mere perpetual and unceasing existence. But in knowing only 
the love of He who is life. The lifeness of life, the blessedness of life, is that it means knowing only the love of He who is altogether lovely. This is the great promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For, because, why will they all know Him? Because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Why do they know? Because they're, they're forgiven. Why are they forgiven? Because the Son took on flesh and was crucified and rose and ascended into glory with authority to give eternal life. To those given to him by the Father. Now this section closes with Jesus basically returning to the central petition. Stating it once more but in reverse order. So instead of glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. You have Jesus has glorified the Father. And then an implicit therefore glorify the Son. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Son has glorified the Father. The Father has given the Son works to do, works whereby the Father testifies to the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. What's the kind of marveling intended? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the Father gives these works to the Son, that testify to the Son so that He'll be glorified and honored. And the Son in doing these works has the intent that that glorifying of Him is to the glory and honor of the Father. But here the Son speaks of the the work of having been accomplished, done. The hour has come, it's still there. The great climactic work that the Father has given the Son to do is still ahead. But Jesus speaks of it as if it's already done. And on that basis, he prays here. It's in John's gospel. It's striking that it's only in John's gospel that we find Jesus lifting up that final unction from the cross. Single word in the original language, to tell us die. It is finished. That's what Jesus has in view here. He's accomplished it. 
with the cross in view as completed, the Son lifts up this prayer again for the Father to glorify the Son in His own presence. See why it has the resurrection and ascension in view through the cross now. The Son on earth asked the Father in heaven to glorify Him with the glory that He had with Him before the world existed. This is what's involved when Jesus told the disciples earlier, 1628, I came from the Father and have come into the world. There's Jesus' humiliation. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father, His exaltation. It's a unique glory. We will come into glory... The saints will come into glory, but we cannot pray, Father, glorify us with the glory that we had, much less had before the existence of the world. We cannot speak, as Jesus does in verse 24, of my glory, as though it's ours, we own it, intrinsic to us. Jesus can. Jesus, as He was God, never lost this glory. But as He took the form of man in His incarnation, humbling Himself, becoming a servant, He, in His glory, was veiled from man's sight. But it's not simply that it was a veiled glory. Per His human nature, there was a true and real humiliation All of Jesus' days. This wonder of He who is the eternal and only begotten Son, transcendent, holy, and infinitely glorious, taking human flesh in a state of humiliation all His days. There's just something not fitting about it. Per His human nature, He is, as He is offering up this prayer, is humbled. And it's per His human nature that He's praying to be glorified. As God, He is glorified. He's praying to be glorified as the Christ, the God-man. The incarnate Son that is praying in His humility, is the incarnate Son who is glorified. It's the incarnate Son who lived to be your righteousness, who died suffering for your sin, who rose conquering death, Satan, and sin, and ascended as your mediator. The gospel you see is the answer to this prayer. The crucified Christ is glorified. Though not as impressive as Anthony Burgess, no one would shame Martin Lloyd-Jones for his 48 sermons that he preached on John 17. They were originally published in four volumes, and in 2000 they were combined into a single volume titled, The Assurance of Our Salvation. And I remember first seeing that title, I thought, that's a really weird title. 
for John 17, the prayer of our Lord. I thought it was a strange title until I started to reflect on it in light of the upper room discourse and Jesus' aim there to comfort his disciples. And then really, whenever I pondered this all in light of McShane's saying, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Whenever I, whenever I thought of this prayer in light of that, then it really made sense why he titled that collection of sermons. Well, he didn't. His wife did posthumously. Why it would be titled, The Assurance of Our Salvation. McShane is saying, Oh, if I could hear Christ praying for me, what courage, what confidence, what faith, what comfort, what assurance I would have. We've seen in the upper room discourse, Jesus' purpose was to comfort His disciples. And now with this prayer, He's lifting us up to the heavenlies. And what better word could we have for comfort lifted up than assurance? Saints, how solid, how inviolate, how resolute, how strong, how solid, how grounded, how certain, how firm is your salvation? It is as solid and resolute and firm as the omnipotent and doting Heavenly Father answering the prayer of His beloved Son who obeyed Him perfectly unto the point of death on a cross. Doubt your own prayer if you will, but do not doubt this prayer. No other could pray, glorify me that I may glorify you so unselfishly as the Son does. Yes, our Son's greatest love for this is clear. It's for us, Heavenly Father. But wed and interwoven inseparably with His love for His Heavenly Father is the love of those given Him by the Father. He prays here as the second Adam. He prays here as the Christ. He prays here as your mediator, your priest, your prophet, your king. He prays such that whenever He is lifted up into glory... You are lifted up with Him. Hebrews 2, 9-10 We see Him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. Why does Jesus come into this authority, this glory, this honor? Because of suffering and death. So that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through the cross, he brings many sons to glory. His glorification 
is your glorification. He's wed to a people given him by his father. Hear this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see it, the answer there? Father, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you by raising up many sons to glory. Dear souls, take heart. Jesus prayed for you and that prayer was heard. The evidence is the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. Your glorified Redeemer lifts you up still. In Him you have eternal life. You know the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Sinner, you don't believe in Jesus? The good news of the only begotten and eternal Son of God become flesh, living to be the righteousness of all who would trust in Him, dying so that upon the basis of His wrath-bearing, they might be forgiven. The good news of Christ risen in victory, ascended, reigning in heaven, promising to return in glory. The good news have been, has been preached to you today. Be assured of this. If you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. See the Son, who is so loved before the Father and the way He intercedes and mediates for those who are His own. Come to Christ. He will not cast you out. And you will be saved. You receive eternal life. You will know God in the Son, by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that's so with our hearts lifted up to you in joy and confidence and assurance and comfort and grace. We cry out that others may know you as we do because we don't know you because of any goodness of our own. We long to see you further magnified in the salvation of sinners. To the praise of your glorious grace, we cry this out now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.